is a fine name for it, Gracie. Blue Remove. Now let me tell you something here, fella. Frozen scenes on an imaginary urn. We love stories! It's time for the apple seed, filled with stories for you and your family. All kinds of tales from all kinds of tellers. I'm Sam Payne, your host. It's such a pleasure for me to be with you today. And of course, we always hope that the stories that we bring you here on the show spark memories and thoughts for you that you can share with the people that you love. And that's going to be the case today as we share stories with you from all kinds of terrific storytellers. You're going to hear a story about Uncle Cleo from the wonderful storyteller Kirk Waller. You're going to hear about Grecian urns from Robin Schultz the Florida storyteller who will tell us about an artifact that came into her family's possession and became the source of a lot of stories. You'll hear from Anne Rutherford from the Pacific Northwest, a story called The Blue Remove, a lovely story about passing from this life. All that and, and a conversation with our friend Sheila Arnold, the wonderful storyteller. She's going to talk about her affection for musicals. But to introduce us to the first story that we're going to hear today, I'm pleased to be joined in the studio by Lacey Ivey, one of our assistant producers. Lacey, it's great to have you with me. It's good to be here. I'm super excited about this story. It's a Michael Reno Harrell story. Michael Reno Harrell, the great musician and storyteller. Tell us a little bit about cleaning out Mama's house. So this story is just one of his personal stories that he shares, and it's about the time that his family went digging through his mom's house and digging through all of her old trinkets, old stuff that she has. And it's just a funny, funny story about all the things they found. But in the end, he kind of talks about the importance of all those silly little things they find. You know, what's so kind of wonderful about this story is it takes place in the wake of the passing of their mother, right? Mm -hmm. And and so you would think that that would be kind of a somber story, even a little bit difficult story perhaps, right? But as you say, it's really lighthearted and it's such a a wonderful, as, as some stories about the passings of dear relatives are, dear loved ones are, this kind of taps into some of the camaraderie and friendship and family love uh, um, among the humor of finding all of mom's old things, right? Oh, yeah, Uh, for sure. It's such a wonderful story among stories about the passing of loved ones. Yeah. You know, I, I, I really love that about this story. We're going to hear it now, Cleaning Out Mama's House, told for you by Michael Reno Harrell, here on The Appleseed. You know, they say people that grew up in the Great Depression have a hard time getting rid of anything. If you grew up around here in the Great Depression, you don't get rid of dirt. I says, my mama... <laughs> My mama would dust the house and take the dust rag and shake it out in the flower bed. <laughs> Recycle it. <laughs> if you'd asked my mother, what's all this stuff in your house? She'd say, I collect things. <laughs> and she did collect things. She had the largest collection of Wonder Bread bags in the Southeast. <laughs> <laughs> Down in the basement, she had a sheet of plywood on two sawhorses, 
where she kept her bread bag collection at. She'd get down to that last hill in there, and she'd take that out and take it over to the fridge there and put it butter on one half and a little blackberry jelly on the other half and fold her together and stick that in her mouth, and you take that bread bag out there and pick all of it out into the bird feeder, you know. <laughs> and then she'd take that bag and her apron thigh there and flatten her out carry that carefully down to the basement and stack it on the top of 583,263 others just like it. <laughs> Neat stacks just covered that 4x8 sheet of plywood and the thing that held down each stack was an empty parquet container full of them little plastic things that hold a bread bag together. <laughs> When my mom passed away, we went to take all her stuff out of her house and try to decide what to do with all of it. Now, usually somebody, something happens like that. You go to somebody's house, you know, some relative that's passed away, and you got, you know, brothers and sisters there. You just say, well, you take mom's room, and I'll take the dining room. One weekend, you'll have everything ready for whatever anybody wants and what's going to goodwill and what's going to get burned in the backyard, you know. There's four boys in my family. My three brothers and our four wives cleaned out my mother's house for 17 weekends in a row. <laughs> it got to where we was having a contest to see who could find the most ridiculous thing anybody would keep. And whoever won, the rest of us had to buy them lunch at Shoney's down there at exit 44, you know. <laughs> this had been going on for about 12 weeks, and I hadn't even come close. I thought, I thought one, one weekend that I had the winner because I had found a, a brown paper grocery bag, and it had all the attachments to a filter queen vacuum cleaner that had died in 1967. <laughs> But my brother, that same weekend, found a hubcap from a Kaiser car full of buttons. <laughs> well, we got, we got to where we weren't taking rooms. We just take pieces of furniture. Just take items, because it's going to take all day to go through, you know. I mean, the couch, I think the couch took me two Saturdays. I found, I found a bicycle wheel under a cushion. I thought that ought to win right there, a bicycle wheel, but my brother found the rest of the bicycle, so it didn't count, you know. It was in the top of my mother's closet. Well, one Saturday I drew, I drew first because everybody felt sorry for me because I was moping around because I never got free lunch. And I drew first and I thought, right there's the winning item. I got it now because I had drawn the dining room hutch. 
Now, y'all got a junk drawer at your house, ain't you? Okay. Where you keep a bottle of twine and maybe like a yo-yo and a that little scotch tape dispenser that's cracked, but you taped it back together, you know. <laughs> and no junk drawer is complete without one of them little pointed things that come with nutcrackers. <laughs> Well, I knew that I was going to win because the dining room hutch had six drawers in it. <laughs> and every drawer in my mother's house was a junk drawer. I, got, I couldn't wait. I got in there in the dining room, and everybody had gone to their perspective place, their respective place. Yeah, they'd gone to where they'd drawn. <laughs> and I got that first drawer on the left there top, and I got hold of the drawer pull, and I went. Pretty soon I had my boot up on the side of it. I had both feet up, my butt hanging out there in the air. My brother John walked by and said, learning to water ski? I said, why don't you go look for a hubcap full of something? About the time he left the room, that drawer came open about that far, and down I went on the floor, and stuff went. <laughs> and I jumped up and looked, and right there on the top of that stack was the winning item. Half a toothpick. And it was in this bag, this Ziploc bag. <laughs> and I started going over the Shoney's menu in my mind. I was going half a pound of ground round. <laughs> Double order of onion rings. <laughs> Strawberry pie. <laughs> And I was in this little trance when my sister-in-law, Tamara, come walking down the steps, and she looked over at me, and she said, What's wrong with you? I said, Nothing wrong with me, honey. Said, Because I got the winning item. She said, What you got? I said, You ain't going to believe it. She said, What is it? I said, Half a toothpick. <laughs> she said, Ain't going to win. I said, what makes you say that? She said, because I got the medicine cabinet. <laughs> what? She reached in the hip pocket of her blue jeans. Bottom half of a thermometer tube. <laughs> What are you going to do, you know? 
I could see that pie fly, you know. <laughs> My brother John come walking in, and he said, y'all doing dancing lessons now, are you? I said, no, Tamara's celebrating winning again. She had won three times. He said, what she got? I said, bottom half of a hammer or two. He said, sorry. I said, what? He said, I said, what you got there? He said, Alka-Seltzer bottle. Full of broken sewing machine needles. <laughs> Thirty-seven and a half. <laughs> you know, y'all got the same stuff I do. These are my treasures. These are my treasures right here. And the reason that these are my treasures is because I know the story behind them. Y'all got the same stuff at home that you would not sell for any amount of money. You know, things like this. That's... That's my mama when I look at that. When I rattle that, I, I see my mama down there making an apron, you know, for Christmas. Now, y'all got the same kind of stuff, and you want it to mean something to the people that you leave it to, don't you? Well, when you leave that to them people, you give them the story with it, or it'll just wind up on the tailgate of somebody's Edsel. A Michael Reno Harrell story called Cleaning Out Mama's House. What a delight to hear that story. That's a great one, Lacey. I absolutely love it. It just brings back so many of those feelings that he talks about of remembering what those little items mean and how they're his treasures. I really relate to that. I think it's so cool. There is, uh, you know, I, 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 there's a real kind of resonance uh, in me when I hear that story because I've, I've done that, right? There have been loved ones in my life who have gone on and together with family members, I've gone through their things, you know, which again can, can be, you might imagine, a kind of a somber experience. But at the same time, it's just filled with so many positive, wonderful memories as you go through those things. Objects can be such powerful sort of, uh, they, they, they can so powerfully bring to mind uh, stories and memories, you know? Yeah, yeah. We did the same thing with my grandma. She was kind of the first person in my life that passed away that I was close to. And yeah. so going through her stuff was really interesting because I knew her really well. And there were so many things I remember like giving to her. And it was just amazing that she kept all of it. Yeah. And knowing what it meant was, it was so special. And it was, it was always those small things. It wasn't even like, those really big items of, wow, this is her wedding dress. Of course she kept it. And it was like, oh, look, it's a little bracelet that we made when yeah. we were in second grade. <laughs> <laughs> I, I appreciate Michael Reno Harrell's admonition at the end of that story. If you give somebody one of those treasures, you got to give the story with it. Or mm -hmm. or it's not a treasure, you know, it's yeah. just, a, just an object. Well, a pleasure to hear that story. Lacey, thanks so much for bringing it to us today. Of course. And there's a lot more coming up on The Appleseed. I'm Sam Payne. 
You're listening to The Appleseed. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to The Appleseed. Here's Sam Payne. It's such a pleasure for me to be with you on today's episode of The Appleseed. We've got a lot coming up this hour. We're going to hear a story called The Blue Remove, kind of a lovely tale about, well, it's about passing from this life, actually. Anne Rutherford will tell it for us. Uh, The storyteller from the Pacific Northwest lives up in the Portland area. And you're going to hear from Kirk Waller about his Uncle Cleo. You're going to love getting to know Uncle Cleo. And you're going to hear about the Grecian urn owned by the family of Robin Schulte, the Florida storyteller, an artifact that was the source of a lot of tales. All that is coming up. There's going to be plenty to spark memories for you that you can share with the people that you love around the kitchen table or the living room. That kind of storytelling makes for memories that last a lifetime. And to get us in the mood for that kind of sharing, how about a conversation with a friend? Great stories come into our lives in so many ways, through the great books that we love, through the songs that we remember, through the meals that we share, through the films we choose to see. And talking about some of those ways in which great stories get down into our hearts is something that we love to do with friends here on The Appleseed. I'm so pleased to be joined from her home, far, far away from The Appleseed studio, one of the great storytellers, Sheila Arnold. Sheila, it's such a pleasure to have you with me. It's so good to be with you, Sam. I love this. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we've shared some good times on stage. We've heard each other's stories. And what we get to do today is talk a little bit about some of the memories that have shaped you, you know, not not even necessarily as a storyteller, but just as a person. And you uh, have a, a, a story about being exposed to a musical play. Tell us all about it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was a kid. My father was in the military. Yeah. And so one of the, I don't know if it's a requirement, but it was from my dad. So whenever any military band came into play, he dressed his three little girls up and took us to everything. So I heard the Army band, the Marine yeah. Corps band, the Air Force band, the, you, you name it, we heard it. And I just, that's how I first started learning stories in my head, actually, sure. because yeah. of that, because I would hear the music and create stories. But my mom and dad began to suspect there was something a little bit more inside of me. And um, so they uh, made it happen where I got to go see um, a musical. And the musical was Ain't Misbehaving. And I saw Ain't Mis... And it was done. uh, Parts of it were actually performed by a... um, uh, by part of a military band. Now that mm. I think back at it, I don't even know how that got together. But I was just—I was stuck. My parents were like, "Okay, we have figured her out." Yeah. And so, for several birthdays, even up until nowadays, my my parents would make sure I had tickets to oh. go see musicals because uh. I I love them. In particular, "Ain't Misbehaving" for me was exciting as an African-American girl, I'd seen, you know, Wizard of Oz and Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, those things on TV, but I, you know, and I, but I hadn't seen black people in those. Yeah. And then all of a sudden it was like, I was made aware of this incredible talent and this incredible music, UB Blake. And then we saw UB and I just, it went from there to there. And I, I left there and I, I, I was in love. I was enraptured. 
one of my favorite movies was West Side Story. I oh, yeah. Um, no, all the words. I live live in America. Okay, by me in America. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> now, one of the things about Ain't Misbehaving is, you know, the, the, the title, of course, comes from that great Fats Waller tune. Mm -hmm. But but the musical contains music from a lot of different composers so that that play can be a window into the work of an entire idiom, right? Uh, the composers working all over the place, and and what a great window it is! No, it was. It was so me. I I was that old. My parents always said I was a little old school, a little old when it came to music. Yeah. Um, I loved their seventy eights. Yes, my mm -hmm. parents had seventy eights. <laughs> yes, I played them, um, and so <laughs> I would play. You know these old 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 music. And it just, I loved it. I loved yeah. Nat King Cole and I, and I, Doris Day. And yeah. so I had all this old stuff in me. It, it just was a natural gravitation when yeah. I heard Ain't Misbehaving, particularly because my dad was, he, he would get a little excited about it. Generally, he was pretty calm when he went to these things. <laughs> but my dad, oh my goodness, it was a whole new world when I saw my dad start to move and shake and, and dance like, you know, uh, badly. Dad danced badly, but enjoy himself. Yeah. And it just opened up worlds for me um, as a girl. And to have my parents recognize that in me was yeah. extraordinary because yeah. they knew that their daughter, this was the way they could love me. Yeah, uh, I I told my sister. I don't know if you ever feel this because you have brothers. You have brothers too. I sure I do. Yeah, you bet. And I told my sister yesterday. I said, you know, my father's still alive, and I said, Daddy loves us differently. And she mm -hmm. said, No, we're both equally loved. I said, That's not the thing. He just loves us differently. Yeah. Because we are different. If he loved me the way he loved you, I would never experience that love, and vice versa. And my parents recognized that love yeah. for me, that this girl here, that I needed music and drama and that kind of thing made me shine yeah. and made me want to be more creative. They loved me in that way, even when it wasn't necessary. They liked, you know, orchestras and stuff like that. Um, but only later on did they really get into as many musicals as I did. Um, <laughs> I think it's so wonderful. You know, you, you are a parent. I am a parent. Mm -hmm. We know how it is. I think in the life of every parent, there is a real sort of searching in your kids for that thing that's going to really spin them. You know, <laughs> that's, that's, that's really going to light their eyes up, you know. Yeah. And when you find that thing, that's, that, that must have been such a wonderful moment for your parents. That's something that you look and look and look and look for. And what a wonderful manifestation. It just breaks my heart that they still get you play tickets. I think <laughs> They do. I they do. I went, I've seen cats like five cats became my favorite. Yeah. And so they sent me, gave me tickets to cats one time, the first time, like, oh, and it was like, okay, okay. We get, we get. And then my son, I started taking him to musicals whenever I could. Yeah. So he now loves these music. One of my special birthdays was that they bought tickets for my son and I to go see the Lion King together. Oh, wow. And, you know, and it was just the two of us. And it was one of those times where, you know, his friends don't know that he has that side of his life where he right. goes to yeah. musicals with his mother. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> 
and but and still goes to musicals with his mother. I mean, what a wonderful thing for for what a wonderful thing. And I'm thinking about some of the things that my own kids and I still do, things that were born when they were very small, you know. Yeah. Uh, it's such a, such such a blessing, and I, I, I we always hope that the stories that we bring to you here on the Appleseed spark memories and thoughts for you that you can share with people that you love. And and thinking now about some of the things that Sheila has said to us, thinking about some of those things where your parents or you as a parent discovered that that thing, right? That thing that would become kind of down at the bedrock of the way you would live your life. What a magical, magical moment. Sheila, thank you so much for sharing with us. Thank you, Sam. And thank you for helping me remember this so I can tell my dad. Such a pleasure to chat with Sheila Arnold. You know, great stories come into our lives in so many ways through the books that we read, the films that we see, the food that we share, and of course the tales that we tell from teller to listener, sometimes through generations and generations. A pleasure to talk with Sheila Arnold about the musicals that she loves. There's a lot more coming up here on The Appleseed. You're listening to The Appleseed. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to The Appleseed. Here's Sam Payne. It's such a pleasure for me to be with you here on The Appleseed. Such a pleasure to chat a moment ago with Sheila Arnold about the musicals that she loves and at the top of the hour to enjoy the Michael Reno Harrell story, Cleaning Up Mama's House. Lots more to come, including this tale from Anne Rutherford, who lives in the Portland area and tells this story about, well, it's about passing from this life, a tender story called The Blue Remove. Happy to bring it to you here on The Appleseed. When I was a little girl, my parents bought land outside Denver, south of the city, and built our house. Now that was in 1929, so there was nothing but prairie between us and the Rocky Mountains, filling up the horizon. How I love those mountains. When Mama gave me chores outside, like weeding the garden or hanging wash, I'd hurry and get done as fast as I could, so I could stop, lean back, and look up at those mountains, blue in the distance. I used to think that everything up there was blue, that if I went up there, the tree trunks would be indigo, the leaves and the grass, turquoise and aquamarine, and even my own skin might take on a bluish tinge like new milk or snow when it's very, very cold. Papa used to say, those mountains are at a far remove. So to myself, I called them my blue remove. And I was determined that one day, one day, I would go see them. The summer I turned 12, one morning early, I heard a car pull up to the house. When I went outside, I heard Mama laughing. Now, there were not many people who could make my Mama laugh. And sure enough, there was my Uncle Howard, her youngest brother, and truth be known, her favorite. And he was swinging my brother Gary around and saying, I'm going to kidnap these children, Louisa. Kidnap them and take them up to the mountains so they can get some good, clean air. I couldn't believe it. Go up to the mountains. 
But then I saw Mama's hands go on her hips, and I could tell from the set of her shoulders she was going to say no. I must have made some sort of sound, because they all turned and looked at me, and Uncle Howard started laughing, and even Mama broke a smile. Good heavens, Grace Louise, you are looking at me like I am some kind of ogre, she said. Oh, all right. I suppose I can get along without the two of you for one day. But I want you back well before sundown. Do you hear me, Howard? She rounded back on my uncle. I don't want my children rattling around those mountain roads in that clap-trap jalopy of yours after dark. I didn't wait to hear any more. I ran in the kitchen, cut some bread we'd just baked, took some cheese and early tomatoes, and we were off. Now, it has always been my dilemma that when I get very, very excited, I get sleepy. So between the thrill of finally going to the mountains and rocking back and forth in Uncle Howard's car, I was soon fast asleep. When I woke up, the car was stopped. I could hear birds chirping and Gary yelling off somewhere. I rubbed my eyes. Everything was greeny gold in the sunlight. Uncle Howard was leaning against a tree smoking a cigarette. Well, sleeping beauty has arisen, he said. Come on out here, Gracie. Take a big old breath of this air. But we're not there yet, I said. Not there yet? Honey, we're as there as we're going to be. Your mama won't thank me if we end up in California. No, we can't be there yet. It's not right. Gracie, he threw down a cigarette and opened the car door. Come on out here, sugar. Let me show you where we are. He took me over to a clearing in the trees, put his arm around my waist, and knelt down behind me. Look out there, Gracie. That's where we came from. I could see trees going down, 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 and then my prairie spreading out below. Instead of mountains, there were houses and buildings in the distance, but it all faded into that same blue. Uncle Howard was pointing. I reckon your mother is right about there, wondering what in tarnation we are getting up to. I started to cry. Gracie, what's wrong? It's, it's not what I thought. It's not how I thought it would be. What, honey, what did you think? I thought, I, I thought it would be blue. Oh, Gracie, no, honey, no, that blue, that's, uh, that's the color of the horizon. It is always in the distance. You, you never really get there. I was crying really hard now. Oh, Gracie, sugar, now, now, Gracie, let, let's think about this. Let's just think about it, all right? I mean, isn't it, isn't it better this way? This way it's always ahead. It's always something to look forward to. Isn't that better than getting there? He put his arms around me and held me until I stopped crying. I took a big gulp of air. It's my blue remove, I said. Well, that is a fine name for it, Gracie. Blue remove. 
I like that, honey. I like that very much. He dried off my face with his shirt sleeve. Just then Gary started yelling again. Now, Gracie, let's go see if your brother found himself a mountain lion or a grizzly bear or both. We had a wonderful day up there and, of course, got back well after dark. I remember Papa carried me in, and Mama took off my shoes and put me in bed still in my clothes. I could hear the grown-ups talking in the next room. I thought I heard Uncle Howard say, Blue, remove. And Papa laughed, and Mama said something, and then I was gone, asleep. Next day, when I got up, nobody talked about our trip. It was just another day. After breakfast, Mama gave me wash to hang, and when I went outside... There were my mountains. The screen door slammed and Mama came out. I thought she was bringing more wash. But she came up right behind me and pulled me back against her. She felt so soft. I could smell the starch from her apron. She put her chin on top of my head and tilted me back. I look up to the hills, she said, from whence cometh my help. And we stood there for the longest time, the two of us, just looking up at the mountains together. I could feel her heartbeat. Then she gave me a squeeze and a little shake and turned me loose. We never said any more about it, but that Christmas she made me a dress. Now, she made me a dress every Christmas. It was my good dress. It had to last the whole year. So usually she made it out of something practical, like plaid or gray wool. But that year, she made me a dress out of the most beautiful sky-blue taffeta. It was just the color of those mountains. It was just the color of her eyes. I wore that dress until I couldn't squeeze myself in it anymore. Then I cut it down into a blouse, and then I made that into a collar, and I still have it pieced in this quilt I've kept to this day. I kept my blue remove as well. That next year, when times were so hard, Papa had to go away to find work. I told myself, it's all right. It's all right. He's just going off into the blue remove. He'll be back. And come springtime, he was. Even when people did not come back, Uncle Howard was shot down over France in the war, and we missed him something awful. But I said to myself, it's all right. It's all right. He's just gone into the blue remove. And I'd imagine him parachuting out of his airplane and the blue wrapping around him like a blanket, holding him close, keeping him safe. All that was a long time ago. I'm an old woman now. More people I love have died and gone beyond than are still with me in this world. My dreams are getting very strong now. And in my dreams, I'm a little girl again, and I'm walking toward those mountains. Each night I get a little bit closer. Last night I was so close. The blue hung down in front of me like a curtain. I could see movement in it and hear voices. 
I heard Papa laughing. I could hear Mama. I heard Frank, my sweet Frank, my husband for 47 years. He was calling, Gracie, Gracie, the way you do when you see somebody first, before they see you. It broke my heart to wake up and be back here. But one day, soon, I will not wake up. I'll keep walking into that blueness, and there I'll be in my own skin with the faces of those I love around me. And it will be sad to be gone from this world and all I love still here. But it's a temporary separation. We're all walking toward that same horizon, heading toward that blue remove. And I do believe we all will meet again in paradise. Tender story from Ann Rutherford. Ann lives in Portland, Oregon, and shared with us a story called The Blue Remove, a story about, uh, about passing from this life, a story filled again with tenderness and observation. There's a lot more coming up. Uh, Robin Schulte is going to be with us in just a little bit with a story called The Grecian Urn. But first, we're going to hear about Uncle Cleo from Kirk Waller, the wonderful storyteller who will bring to us the tale of his uncle, who is the smartest man that he knows in his whole life. The tale, however, has a twist. It's because of his uncle Cleo that the world has common sense, all thanks to one little miss. Can you believe it so far? Well, you're going to enjoy listening and sharing this experience with Kirk Waller as he tells the story. Here he is with the story, Uncle Cleo on the Appleseed. I was convinced that my Uncle Cleo was the smartest man in the whole world. He knew things that even the, the teachers in high school and colleges didn't know. He knew things like why cat and dog don't like each other. He could answer all my questions of why and then some. So one summer, when I was a little boy, I was sitting at his house. He was telling me stories, and his wife, Aunt Mabel, turned around and looked at him real slow. And she had this big black skillet in her hand that she was just shaking back and forth. She finally spoke up and said, Cleo, why are you telling that boy all them stories? Act like you ain't got no sense at all. Ain't none of them true. Now, I don't know why she called them stories, because to me, they were not stories, but moments of truth and enlightenment. But when she got finished talking and Uncle Cleo got finished listening, he walked out without saying a word, opened the front screen door, sat down on the porch, and of course, I was right behind him. And as he settled in his old rocking chair, I pulled up the footstool and he said, Now let me tell you something here, fella. She talking about I ain't got no sense at all. 
I got plenty of sense, I do. Now, there was a time when there wasn't any sense in the world. No folks didn't have any sense at all. Well, maybe a wise old owl who lived up in the barn, he, he was a smart fella. And the coyote who lived in the backwoods, yeah, he had some know-how, and maybe a handful of rich folks. That was about it. Didn't nobody else have a lick of sense. But one day, there was this fella, went by the name of Little John. But then Uncle Cleo stopped rocking, and he looked at me, and he leaned in real close, and he almost whispered, he said, you want to know why they called him Little John? Now, I have to tell you, there was no right way to answer Uncle Cleo. If I had said, no, I'm not exactly sure why they called him Little John, he'd look at me and he'd say, don't they teach you anything in school? And he'd, like, poke me in the forehead. Or if I said, well, yes, sir, I think I know why they call him Little John. He'd look at me just as hard, and he'd say, Oh, you think you're smarter than me and everybody else? And then he'd thump me in the forehead. So this particular time, I decided to take the road less thumped. And I said, Well, sir, no, I don't know why they called him Little John. And he looked at me. He leaned in real close. He said, they called him Little John on the counter. His name was John, and he was a little fella. Don't they teach you anything? And he poked me in the forehead. Then he went on with the story, and he said, Little John gets this notion that he's going to gather up all the common sense in all the world and stuff it in his bag, and if anybody needed some know-how or needed some smarts, they'd have to come to him and pay a pretty penny for it. So that's exactly what he did. Uncle Cleo told me how, how Little John, in the daytime, snuck up on the wise old owl. See, while that owl was napping, Little John got up there and grabbed up all of his wisdom. Mm-hmm. And while the coyote was asleep, he got all his smarts and know-how, too. And then later that night, when those handful of rich folks were just snoring and, and dreaming about their riches and all the smart things they did, Little John, he got their wisdom and know-how, too. Well, the next day, he took all of that. It was stuffed in a big old sack. He wrapped up that sack and put a loop on it and hung it around his neck so it was hanging in front of him. And then he commenced to climb in a really tall tree. He was going to climb up there and put that common sense in the tree so they'd have to come through him to get it. Problem was, the minute little John starts climbing up that tree, his sack would get snagged on a branch and rip open a little bit, and some of that sense would go spilling out. And he'd have to put his hand in there and hold some of that while he tried to climb up the tree a little bit more. But then it would snag again, and, and on this side, a little bit of common sense would start spilling out. Well, he was having himself quite a time, and here comes this little fella knee-high to a whippersnapper. 
couldn't have been older than four or five years old. He's just laughing and pointing at little John. <laughs> Look at you. And little John, he looks down. He says, what you laughing at, little fella? You better close your mouth right now. And the boy just laughs and points. He says, don't you know nothing at all? Why, if you put that sack around your back, it won't get snagged up on that tree, and whatever that is you got in there won't come spilling out. <laughs> now, he went on his way, but this just made little John mad. Here it is that he thought he had gathered all the sense in all the world and stuffed it in this big old sack, and this little fella seemed to be smarter than he was. So he takes that sack, holds it over his head, and throws it down. Of course, it gets snagged and caught on tree branches. It rips and busts wide open. Common sense just starts flying all over in the air. The wind blows it this way and that way. Wind blows it all over the world. And well, that's why everybody got a little bit of common sense. Uncle Cleo, a story from Kirk Waller about a beloved relative. You've probably got stories about your relatives, too. And we encourage you to open your mouth and share those stories with the people that you love around the kitchen table or the living room. And our last story today is from Robin Schulte, the Florida storyteller who found the art of storytelling in teaching English and speech classes in high school. And ever since, Robin has shared stories with audiences of all kinds all over the place. Personal tales and literary adaptations and folk tales are sometimes her favorites to tell. Today you're going to be hearing a story that comes from her own experiences. In this story, she shares uh, the story of an old relic that her family owned that grew to bear a lot of family stories. And she now passes that along to you today. Robin Schulte with her story, The Grecian Urn, here on The Appleseed. In 1972, my mother spent a week recording an audio message to her older brother on what was at the time one of those fancy new cassette recorders. It was about as big as a book, and it had the weight of a couple of bricks. And on half of it, there was a big speaker. And then there was a little flip door that you could slip a cassette into. And there was a row of these shiny, slick, rectangular buttons to play and rewind and fast forward. There was a plastic plug-in microphone with a little silver mesh head. And on this recording, my mother talks conversationally for almost an hour about her daily life, about our newly acquired Scotty dog, Bo, about the chicken pox that we had all recently come down with, and a bungled attempt at a night out that she had tried to share with my dad. She was learning to play the auto harp, and she even plays a song and sings along. It's a slice of frozen life from 41 years ago. 
I vaguely remember this project, her walking around and talking into that microphone and narrating her life, and then listening back to it and erasing the parts she didn't like. And when she grew tired of the four of us climbing all over her and asking for a turn, she let each of us kids hold the microphone and say a few words. And we, in turn, each said something, and then we would immediately beg her to play it back so we could hear the sounds of our own voices. If I were to play it for you now, you would hear my older sister, Andrea, say, Okay, is it on? Can I hold it? I'm Andrea, and I'm eight years old. What? Yes, I am. I am eight. I'm eight. I'm pretty sure that it's me in the background challenging her age. <laughs> and then I come on and I say, My name is Robin. I'm six and I wear glasses. <laughs> and then my little brother Christopher says, I'm Huey Christopher Simpson, and I'm four years old. Well, I'm three. I'll be four in, in a week. Oh, I mean a month. I said a week. I meant a month. I'll be four next month. My brother Jonathan is too young to speak, and so my mom holds him on her lap, and she describes him saying, Oh, this Jonathan. He's not much to look at. <laughs> he's got these ears that stick out on the sides of his head. Well, well, he's got one big one and one little one. But he's got a personality that more than makes up for what he's lacking in looks. It is remarkable to me that after all the moves and shuffling of my childhood, this tape remains. I think of it as a family archaeological find. In his poem, Ode on a Grecian Urn, John Keats describes frozen scenes on an imaginary urn. There are three scenes. In the first one, there is a young boy playing music on a pipe as he sits against the trunk of a tree and relaxes in the shade of one of its boughs. In the second scene, there are two young lovers engaged in a chase. The boy, reaching out for his love, smile on his face, arm outstretched. And in the third scene, there is a group of townspeople, and they're making their way to the altar for a sacrifice. They are leading with them this baby calf. They are forever frozen in these perpetual moments. And Keats, he is saddened that the music from that piper's pipe will never be heard. And that young lover, he will never touch the object of his affection. And somewhere off of the urn, there is a town empty of its people waiting in perpetual stillness for their return. And then he says, that music from the piper's pipe must be more beautiful than any we have ever heard. It is the music of the gods. And those young lovers, they will never grow old or tire of one another. 
and that baby calf will not have to die. They are forever frozen on that urn. My mother died in 1993 when she was just 52 years old. She should have lived longer. She should be here today, but she lives on this cassette tape, perpetually 32 years old, the mother of three small children and a new baby infant. She is married to my dad, and they haven't fallen out of love or gone down that rugged road that ends in divorce. She is enamored with her Scotty dog, and she dreams of someday owning one of those brand new 1973 Volkswagen buses that hold seven. <laughs> but as she points out, they want $3,500 for the darn thing. <laughs> she and these images live in perpetually frozen time. And when I can't bear that she isn't here, she is there. And so it is with stories. The people that we create and remember in stories, they live forever as long as their stories are told. There is a younger version of me that lives in the story of note passing. And my story of Jack has forever captured him at 11, desperate to find out how the levitator works. And Ansley will forever be known as the girl who at 19 shaved her head. Thanks to the art of story, these are my frozen moments, my Grecian urn. Robin Schulte, the Florida storyteller, with the Grecian urn. That's from a collection called Jack and the Levitator. The title story of that collection is about her son, Jack, and a magic trick called the Levitator. You can look Robin up online and find more of her work. Robin is R-O-B-I-N. Schulte is S-C-H-U-L-T-E. A pleasure to hear before that the story Uncle Cleo by Kirk Waller about uh, how her about how Kirk's Uncle Cleo brought common sense into the world, right? And, of course, you heard The Blue Remove, a story from Anne Rutherford, who lives in the Pacific Northwest and creates stories filled with observation and tenderness about life experiences. That story about passing from this life. It's from a collection of stories called Living in the Driveway, stories of finding our place. It was such a pleasure for us to chat with uh, our friend Sheila Arnold about her love of musicals. It's got me humming tunes from Broadway shows that have been dear to me my whole life. Maybe it does the same for you. And of course, we would encourage you to share those stories with the people that you love. And at the top of the hour, you heard a story from Michael Reno Harrell, the wonderful musician and storyteller, a story called Cleaning Out Mama's House, a tale that reminds us that when you pass along an artifact, you pass along something that used to belong to you or somebody that you love to somebody else, you got to pass along the story as well. That's from a collection of stories and songs called Hoot and Holler. 
It's been such a pleasure for me to be with you. Join us, won't you, on uh, the website, byuradio.org slash Appleseed. You'll find all kinds of wonderful stuff there, episode after episode after episode of the show, filled with stories for you and your family, thousands of stories there in that archive. And, of course, we would invite you to Google the Appleseed Podcast for all kinds of stuff there, too. Google the Appleseed Podcast and subscribe for something new just about every day on the Appleseed. Not only these full hours of the Appleseed filled with stories for you and your family, but also Appleseed Extras, mini episodes of the show with just a single story or song in them in case you only have a moment and you want to fill that moment with a great story or tune. In fact, today's Appleseed Extra is a song called At The Moment by the great storyteller and songwriter John McCutcheon, and you won't want to miss that. Our producer is Jeff Simpson. I'm Sam Payne. Can't wait to be with you again on The Appleseed. Thanks for joining us for an hour of stories, music, and conversation made for you and your family and brought to you by The Appleseed. The show is a production of BYU Radio. We'll see you next time.